Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Kalyan Varma, co-founder and CEO of Almabase, a company that's doing more than $100,000 in monthly recurring revenue, helping universities and high schools manage their alumni relationships and increase their donations. In this episode, we talk about how Almabase got started, how Kalyan got his first kind of initial customers for the company, the sales process of getting into universities, which can be so difficult, what the targeting and go-to-market strategy really looked like outside of India when he went into the United States, how he looks at competition and differentiating Almabase, value-based pricing. We talk a lot about pricing in this episode, especially for SaaS companies. Also going into bootstrapping versus raising venture capital, how case studies have fueled Almabase's growth, and so much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here's Kalyan Varma, co-founder and CEO of Almabase. Kalyan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and excited to talk about Almabase and all the things you're, you're doing with it. And for people who aren't familiar, what is Almabase? Almabase helps universities and high schools uh, build better relationships with their alumni. Um, you know, and that sounds like mumbo jumbo, but essentially, <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 the ROI or the return on investment from an institution's perspective is that when you build a strong alumni community, it benefits all the stakeholders, which means, you know, the, the students benefit through better mentorship. The university benefits because they can raise more donations. The alumni themselves benefit because they can network and, you know, find people for various purposes. So essentially, by maintaining a strong alumni community, you're able to benefit all the stakeholders. And that's where AlmaBase comes in and helps a university or a high school. I love it. And with this as well, then, Understand this is kind of where you're at today. There's, I love to go through the journey of it. How did this get started in the first place? Yeah, it's a, it's a long story, actually. So back in uh, back when I was in undergrad with my current co-founder at Alma Base 3, uh, we were actually both classmates at uh, our undergrad college uh, in India. And we, we happened to be in this situation where a couple of our classmates and friends were uh, dropping out of college. Uh, you know, this is... Uh, junior year right so they've already completed two years they're in their junior year and then they're having to drop out because the college had raised fees and they were not able to afford the fee anymore right and we were like man this doesn't make any sense at all i mean you've worked so hard to get into this school and now you're having to drop out just because you cannot afford it there has to be a better way around this right so and again remember this is in india so you know alumni donations or fundraising or any of that is not as established as it is in the united states so we ended up at that point thinking of a really simple solution, we said, hey, our college has 30,000 alumni. Why don't we reach out to all of them right? and <laughs> ask them for some funds? And we created a financial model around this. We said, uh, you know, give us money. We'll fund, use the money to fund scholarships for whoever needs it. And then when they graduate and get a job, they'll pay you a portion of their monthly salary and you get your money back, right? <laughs> so we created a nonprofit entity, uh, started raising funds and, uh, you know, funded scholarships for several, in fact, over 100 students over the next several years, even after we graduated. Wow. Uh, but that's when this whole journey started, even though at that point, we never really realized that this was an idea that was worth building a company around, right? Because we were trying to just solve a very specific problem at that point. 
And then we graduated. I took up a job at Goldman Sachs, worked there for a few years. And my co-founder as well took up a full-time job at a different company. And we worked, you know, different jobs. And then I started, you know, another company. Ended up trying two or three different startup ideas uh, for a couple of years. And somehow all the dots connected <laughs> again in 2014 when we were like, you know what? The, the problem that we tried to solve for our college sounds like many other colleges have this problem. We tried to productize, uh, you know, whatever we worked on over those years, you know, um, building that nonprofit entity. And then we started Alma Base as, as a product company. Uh, initially, we were sort of focused on uh, trying to sell this to Indian colleges because that's where the idea really started. Um, you know, long story short, but yeah, eventually we, we shifted focus. But yeah, this is sort of how um, Alma Base came together. Yeah, and I want to go through that early days as well. You mentioned starting with uh, colleges in India. How did the first uh, the first ones go in terms of getting them to sign up for you? Yeah, so no prizes for guessing this, but the first customer was our own uh, college, our, our alma mater. <laughs> Good um, place to start. <laughs> yeah, they sort of uh, forced their hand into buying this. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we started with our college and then started approaching different colleges in terms of trying to educate them on why they should build a strong alumni community. Uh, and it was it was tough initially uh, because, you know, everybody had a different perspective on, you know, why they needed alumni relations. In a lot of cases, they didn't even care so much about having a strong alumni community. So we did that for a couple of years. Uh, and the initial insight that we had, or at least the idea that we started with, was that, hey, everybody in the U.S. really sort of figured out how to, um, you know, do alumni relations. They've already all, all cracked it. And then we just need to sort of replicate that in India. Right. So we started reading a bunch of content around alumni relations uh, from the US and then tried to replicate those ideas in India. But we sort of hit a wall uh, where like, you know, we, we in, in the first two years or so, we sort of sold to all the top sort of premier colleges in India who had something to do with alumni relations. Right. So we sold our software. We told them how, how they're going to, you know, sort of benefit from it, etc. But then we were trying to reach uh, sort of the second tier colleges in India and everybody was like, hey, you know what, like, we don't care about alumni relations, right? Like that's not even a priority for us, right? Jeez. So we ended up sort of saying, hey, like if we have to educate every single college in India uh, about the need for alumni relations before even selling our software, it sounds like a really sort of tough journey, right? Uh, yeah. So a couple of years into it, uh, you know, we coincidentally, when we were hitting this wall in India, we also started getting some inbound interest from the US. And yeah, so that's the beginning of our sort of shift into the US. And then today we're, you know, about 95% of our revenue comes from the US. Most of our customers are from the US. So we're very US focused at this point. Gotcha. And from that as well, then on that note of, of revenue and kind of the business model, what is the business model behind Amobase? Yeah, so we have a couple of different uh, revenue streams up front. You know, we, we have a SaaS sort of subscription model for universities and high schools to subscribe for this, right? So typical contracts are multi-year and usually in universities and schools pay us every year. Uh, we don't have monthly or quarterly con contracts. Since, you know, alumni establishing a strong alumni community is is a long journey. It's not something that you see returns on in a month or in a quarter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, we typically have uh, annual contracts and, you know, so that's the subscription fee. And then on top of that, uh, you know, we... we uh, universities pay us for, let's say, professional services where we go in and help them improve a specific kind of program within their alumni community. 
Uh, we also, uh, you know, have implementation fees. And then uh, because donations are also processed through our platform, we also make a cut on uh, every donation that an alum makes uh, to their university. And that's how we tie our success or their success to our success. So as long as we're able to help universities raise more and more funds over a period of time, we're also making more revenue from that university. On that note, I'm just curious, like, what is the maybe the average in terms of your customers, average customer value? Because it, it seems like there could be a, a, a range of sorts. I'm curious as to where you're at now in terms of what that looks like. Yeah, we've uh, changed that quite a bit over the years. Uh, <laughs> You know, at this point, I would say that our average is somewhere around, uh, you know, $8,000 to $10,000 per year, um, you know, in terms of the subscription fee. Um, and only this year, we've actually gotten the, the whole transaction fee uh, component getting started. So we're making, uh, you know, a little bit of revenue on that. That My, my uh, you know, thesis is that that will become a substantial portion of our revenue in the future. But at this point, the subscription is the, is the biggest chunk of our revenue and yeah, we do um, somewhere like eight to ten thousand dollars on average per customer per year. From that as well, then understanding that that's that's a process. You obviously have annual contracts because of the logistics of how this works, and also needing time to build those relationships. What was the the sales process, sales cycle like for getting into institutions? I imagine it's it's slow. Take me through what that's been like. <laughs> yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's one of our biggest challenges, <laughs> right? Um, essentially universities, um, I don't mean to say this in a negative way, but universities tend to operate, uh, you know, very traditionally in terms of their mindset, right? Uh, they don't really want to change things very quickly, right? And for good reasons, right? Yeah. So one of the challenges, like you mentioned is, you know, how do you get something new, uh, you know, into the, into an institution like that? Is obviously hard, but I mean, I mean, over the years, we've sort of developed lots of collateral, lots of material trying to educate why it's important to make this shift, right? And I think the biggest change that's happening with alumni relations is that traditionally, when you think of alumni relations, uh, you know, you, you think of events, right? You think of people coming together, you know, having a party, yeah. having a reunion. That's traditionally what alumni relations is, right? But in the modern world, right, especially when you can engage people, especially this year where, you know, everybody's realized that you don't actually need to be in person to engage people, right? You don't need to be in person to provide value, right? So alumni relations is going through this massive shift over the last few years and significantly accelerated by this pandemic where you can't think of alumni relations just as events, right? But you have to think of different programming opportunities. You know, let's say I'm an alumni relations director at a university, right? I should be thinking about, okay, what are my, let's say, younger alumni needing right now? What can I do to provide value to them, right? So, for example, yeah. a young alum might be thinking, hey, how can I get my next job? Or, hey, how can I connect with someone from this company, right? Or, hey, how can I connect with potentially, um, you know, employers in, in different contexts, right? And so how do you as a university facilitate for that value to be delivered to those, those young alumni, right? Whereas let's say an alum who's in their mid-career, right, is probably thinking of business networking, right? So can you facilitate yeah. for the alumni network to make that happen, right? Similarly, you know, an alum who's probably, you know, in their older years is probably thinking, how can I connect back to some of my classmates who I haven't met in 30 years, right? So how do you facilitate for that? So as a university, rather than just thinking of, hey, here's the 10 events that I you know, put together every year, how can you actually create programming that creates value to each of your alumni across different segments of your alumni population 
is what's changing, right? And that shift in mindset is the most important sort of change that's happening. And as AlmaBase, what we do really well is we facilitate for that change to happen really easily without, you know, having a substantial sort of staff, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a resource. Well, and to that point, I mean, take me through then a little bit more of behind the scenes of what the software is actually like when someone's using it. I'd be curious to know, I'm sure obviously uh, people potentially listening want to know on the growth side of it, but how, what does the software actually look like? What's, what are some of the things you guys are doing on that end? Yeah, I think a good way to sort of explain this, uh, you know, to non-university audience is, uh, <laughs> you know, you, when you, if you have a physical store, right, and you want to go online, right, you have Shopify, right? So Shopify yeah. essentially gives you all the building blocks or Lego blocks, if you will, to take your store online, right? Whether it's a payment gateway, whether it's a storefront, whether it's, uh, you know, inventory management, whatever you need. Similarly, for an alumni program to be successful, they need various sort of Lego blocks to be able to conduct various kinds of alumni programming that provide value to alumni. So on the back end, we have something like Here's an email marketing software. Here's an event management software. Here's a fundraising management software. Here's a, you know, online alumni directory component, right? Here's a uh, business direct alumni business directory component. So all of these different components essentially help you, you know, put together a great alumni program. And every university is different, right? Because what a, for example, Stanford University puts together as an alumni program is very different from, say, a Northwestern Health Sciences University, right? Yeah. And so we provide all of the building blocks to be able to put together a great uh, alumni program. You you mentioned the uh, number of different universities, obviously started in India, then went to the United States. Uh, how did you strategize on just which ones you were going to end up targeting initially going through that? I mean, just hitting up literally everyone. Like, How did you go about that process? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, that's one of the interesting things that I thought we did right, uh, even though we made several mistakes along the way. I think what we realized was we wanted to actually target this market uh, completely opposite to what you would traditionally think. So typically, most companies would start with some of the largest universities, right? Because obviously, that's where you get the brands and that's where you get the largest sort of ticket sizes. But since we were sort of making the shift from India to the US, we actually started with some of the smallest sort of alumni teams, right? So we started targeting high schools. We really created a niche in the high school segment because, again, it wasn't as populated as some of the larger university space, right? Um, in terms of other solution providers, right? So we started with small uh, high schools, went, ended up, you know, talking to private independent high schools mostly, and then started targeting a little more on the independent college side, uh, then started targeting professional schools within universities. And then only recently we started sort of selling to overall university uh, wide sort of implementations as well. So we started from the bottom and started going upstream from there. Did you, how did you come across that, that insight? I mean, it, it, it makes sense when you're saying it now, but as you mentioned, people would probably try to get the brand names initially. How did you decide on that initially? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think uh, so the way we sort of uh, went to market in the US, uh, especially because we had very little insight into how alumni relations actually works in the US is we basically figured out that, um, you know, there's a bunch of annual conferences that happen around alumni relations and fundraising. So when we had decided to sort of shift focus to the US, we literally, me and my co-founder got on the flight, went to every single conference in the US, <laughs> like, spoke to spoke to as many people as we can saying hey what do you do right? like walk me through what you do every day <laughs> right uh so that's where we i think realized that um you know the challenges that 
a large public university, uh, you know, potentially someone like a Stanford has, is very, very different from what a small independent school uh, with one alumni relations staff and 3,000 alumni, you know, the kind of challenges that they have are very, very different. And I think we ended up resonating a lot more with, um, you know, with their challenges. Uh, And so ended up, you know, just sort of saying, hey, looks like this is what we resonate with the most. So this is what we should be targeting. Also sounds like, you know, we'll be the only player in this space because nobody else cares about serving small schools. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's how I think we uh, ended up there. And also I think for us, one of the things that was very important right from the beginning, both for my co-founder and I, was was the mission of the company, right? Because if you go back to the roots of how it all started, for us, the mission of this company is to make education more affordable, right? And the way, the, the way we're achieving that is by using alumni generosity to be able to fund more uh, scholarships, to be able to get more students access to education, to, to be able to make it more affordable, right? So, so that paid forward cycle, if you will, right? Like today, for example, for a student to get a high quality education at a university, let's say it costs the university $50,000 to be able to provide that education, right? If you say the fee is going to be $50,000, then obviously only a certain section of society can actually access that education, right? But if you actually subsidize that education by, let's say, getting generosity, I mean, through the generosity of alumni, then you're able to say, hey, the fee is only $30,000, the rest $20,000 will be covered by alumni donations, then suddenly it becomes accessible or affordable to more people, right? So that is the mission. And I think, you know, the the reason I was mentioning this was that, uh, you know, through those initial conversations at all of those conferences, uh, you know, we realized that our missions most strongly resonated with some of these smaller institutions and what they were trying to do with their alumni relations. So, so that's where we ended up focusing. And and with that as well, then you had mentioned there, you know, being obviously other solution providers at different universities as well. How have you gone about looking at competition? How has that affected what you do? I, I heard there's a, a number of them, but like, how have you gone about that? Understanding what the com- competition looks like? Yeah. I think we were uh, blissfully ignorant for a while, <laughs> to be honest. And I think that was a good thing because, you know, all we did all day was basically just spoke to customers and built whatever they asked for, right? Uh, without really focusing on what else uh, somebody else was doing for a long time, actually, to be honest, right? Um, and with respect to differentiating uh, with competition, I think we obviously do have a few competitors in this space, uh, several of them actually, but a few that I think have uh, gotten to product market fit um, along with us. Um, in terms of differentiation, I think the way we approach this problem is is very different. Um, and I'll explain how, right? So everybody else in the space, right, that we, uh, that, you know, we've looked at essentially comes with this idea that if you're able to create a private social network for every institution, right? So sort of like take LinkedIn, create a private version of it only for your university alumni to access then that's the holy grail and every single alum, every single student is going to access it. And, you know, you're going to have tons of great engagement. So suddenly you're shifting from events to just like an online social network, right? But I think for us, what we've realized with our own data and also looking at some of the success that, uh, you know, institutions with some of our competitors were not able to have and then they switched to us is that while that is an important building block, that's not everything that you need, right? So you need, for example, you need the ability to create uh, so gather information from alumni using forms. You need the ability to measure engagement across different touch points. For example, 
if an alum likes a post from the university on facebook and then opens an email versus somebody makes a you know another alum makes a donation how do you weigh the level of this engagement right so there's there's a fair amount of uh, you know logic and maths that's involved in understanding how to measure alumni engagement and so just saying create a private social network and all you know all of your alumni are going to come engage is i think only solving half of the puzzle i think that's yeah. how we're different from uh, the rest of the companies like i said like you know we we don't view this as we are here to create a private social network for every university we are here to basically give you any tool that you need to build a successful alumni program one thing i want to go back to real quick uh, cuz you you mentioned this but i didn't i actually didn't ask at the time but i'm curious you know, i know you mentioned you going the revenue model as a percent as well of like the donations just this year like very recently this has been i mean this is like 6 years in at what point, like what, what brought you to that decision now versus sooner? You probably would have, I, I would have thought you would have done that maybe sooner on or in the process. How did you get to that point now in the business? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in, in hindsight, yes, we should have done that much sooner. <laughs> we kept, uh, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, we tend to learn our lessons the hard way. Uh, you know, I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people will listen to this episode and think, oh, that's not for me <laughs> until you realize it is. <laughs> Right. Um, but yeah, jokes apart, uh, you know, I think we we initially sort of felt like, hey, our job is to help, uh, you know, teams, alumni relations teams engage their alumni better. Right. And so we need to charge them a certain amount to make that happen, to facilitate for that to happen. And then whatever donations they raise out of that is not our business. Right. That's that's the mindset in which we operated in. Right. But then we realized as we learned more about value-based pricing and how, uh, you know, institutions view this, right? What we realized is we can actually cut down on how much we charge initially, right? By actually tying the outcome of the university with our outcome, right? So suddenly now universities are able to look at that and say, uh, you know what, like, unless we actually grow our alumni donations, these guys don't make, make as much money as well, right? So that's how we mm-hmm. tie the value together. And I think that insight you know, came in, I would say about a year and a half ago when we were talking to other companies about how they were sort of landing and expanding accounts and how they were growing uh, their revenue as their customers value grew. Um, so yeah, this, this happened more recently. On that note as well, I mean, I, I love that you mentioned that because value-based pricing, I had someone recently say a, say a similar thing around that, but take me through then just even how you've thought about pricing. It's obviously progressed at this point. So it took some time. You learned some lessons around pricing to get to that point. But everyone I talk to about pricing, it's just, it's kind of a black box of sorts in many ways. And most people I talk to, you know, want to charge more and like, you know, charge a higher price. How did you even land on the pricing you have today? Like take me through more of like your thought process behind, behind that. Yeah. Um, again, every single person listening to this podcast is probably undercharging their customers at this point. So please go <laughs> increase your pricing. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think we started again, like when we started in India, the price point was much lower. It was more like a, you know, $800 a year uh, per university kind of price point. And then we, you know, once we moved to the US, we, we started at about $3,000 um, ACV, uh, you know, as, as our average price point never really paid too much attention uh, to, you know, the value metric and how to sort of charge more when the customer is getting more value and things like that um, to, to our own peril, right? I mean, I, if I had to redo this, I would certainly pay attention to that right at the beginning. I think pricing is one of the biggest levers for growth, as, as you know, many of the people on this podcast have mentioned earlier as well. 
Um, so when we, I mean, honestly, we didn't do enough experimentation around pricing. We would sort of try slightly higher pricing every quarter, every half year, and then see how it goes. So it's been very uh, unscientific, if you ask me, in our uh, space, except <laughs> in probably the last one and a half years where I think we've thought through it a lot better. And I think we've got a much better pricing model now, but I honestly still think that we are far from having a perfect pricing model for this space. Uh, we're constantly trying to change that every quarter. I mean, Patrick Campbell from uh, ProfitWell has this really amazing blog post, and I'll share that with you. Maybe you can include that in the show notes, but yeah. you know, there's an amazing uh, article around how to think about value metrics and how to think about proxy value metrics because your value metrics are not always measurable for, for a lot of SaaS companies and how to design your pricing. And I think, you know, if if other SaaS founders get a lot of other things wrong, but get pricing right, I think they'll still be doing well, right? Uh, so it's that important. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is so important to your point. It's such a lever for growth. Because when you look at some of these businesses that, I mean, literally had the capability of doubling their pricing and not having that really affect them too much, and even, you know, not even lose that many customers, if not even have still more potentially, depending on the positioning of your product as well. It's kind of insane to think about how much you probably are undercharging as a company uh, yeah. and leaving on the table, which is your pricing alone. Uh, and we could probably dive into that way more. But one of the other things that I want to talk about is obviously this company, when you start something, a lot of times you need capital to get it off the ground, even if it's a little bit. How have you, how have you funded this company in the beginning? Yeah, so I think uh, we've stuck to what we do best, which is alumni relations. So, you know, we've essentially yeah. <laughs> raised money from our own alumni. Um, that's been the only sort of funding that we've raised early on. Uh, you know, we reached out to a bunch of alumni and said, hey, you know what, we're doing this. We truly believe in this. Some of you have funded scholarships through our nonprofit entity. Now you get to make that impact with a larger <laughs> population in the world. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, do you want to be investors in this company, right? So that's how we sort of raise money. All of our initial sort of investors are alumni of the company. In fact, a lot of our early team members, uh, and we can talk about that in more detail as well, but are all alumni of our, of our college as well. Um, and then, but yeah, since since we raised a little bit of money early on and, you know, uh, did a bunch of stuff uh, until we made this pivot to the US, but then since then we've not raised money and pretty much operated like a bootstrapped company. And I don't know, yeah, like you mentioned with the team, who, who is the team behind this and how have you gone about growing the team for AlmaBase over time? Yeah, so the first, I would say um, seven to 10 people, uh, a bunch of them did come from our own uh, college. So essentially uh, alumni of, of my alma mater, me and my co-founder are alma mater, right? Um, again, it was a really strong uh, you know, desire for us also to really eat our own dog food in some sense, right? You yeah. know, we wanted the ability to uh, really kind of prove out, our, prove out our own thesis, right? Because a strong alumni community makes all the difference, right? And for us, again, you know, we were very well connected within our own uh, alumni community and we were using our own software to connect people. And, you know, we were, we used our own tool to be able to find other alumni who would, you know, like-minded alumni who would come in and, you know, be interested in building this out, right? So the initial team, I would say up to 10 people were all, you know, with our own network, right? Uh, either our own alumni or friends of our alumni, things like that. So that's how we built the initial team. And then it grew slowly, slowly from there. We're about 27 people at this point. What has been most helpful on the, on the hiring front for you? 
Yeah, a couple of things that I, you know, I, I do talk to other uh, younger entrepreneurs who are starting out their businesses at this point, and when when they talk to me about recruitment, a couple of things that I find myself mentioning uh, quite frequently is one, I think having extreme clarity on you know what you want this person to be doing once they join. I mean, it sounds so obvious when I say it, right? But a lot of people recruit without <laughs> having that clarity, right? For example. One of the things that we've stuck to as a discipline for the last three years is that whenever we roll out a JD, right, for a new uh, opening at the company, we actually had a very, very detailed uh, JD where we talk about, you know, here's what we'll do to set you up for success in this role. Here's what we expect you to do in three months, six months, nine months, and twelve months from now. Uh, you know, here's what we expect you to know when you join. Here's what we'll train you with, and all of that, right? And what it does is. it forces each of us when we're making you know that job opening live is it forces each of us to think through exactly what we want this person to do and in some cases we actually realize you know what we actually need a different person not what we originally sort of started out with um so that's one advice that i have uh, around recruitment which is have, have extreme clarity on you know exactly what you want this person to be doing um, you know once they join the other thing um that we realized is i think we tend to put pay a lot more attention to culture fit uh even if the skills are not up to the mark and we feel like they're coachable uh you know we'll end up making the hire and we'll end up retaining them for longer but if someone's a culture misfit right uh yeah. then up front we we i mean for example we've actually designed our own interview round we've been doing this for the last two and a half years is we call it the culture round where we have three panelists from within the company um essentially just having a conversation with people uh the candidates to to understand whether this person will fit into our culture right and that's been super helpful for us in making sure that we retain this culture that we've worked so hard on building yeah culture is so important in any company and it's it's been fascinating to hear different entrepreneurs and how they ap- approach that and you know defining their values early on and understanding what you know what it's going to be because it, you build it out you start with a small team and as it grows and grows you can't really control the culture if you've if you don't start with a good spot uh it's really hard to kind of reel it back in if it's gotten out of control in terms of being aligned with what you kind of want um so it's important to understand that early on and the people you bring in are obviously critical to defining that culture one thing just uh I'd be curious to get your opinion on as well you you raise a little bit of money early on uh for Alma Base and then obviously it been profitable i imagine then early on as as well but how do you think about the idea of being bootstrap versus venture backed and reaching that type of scale i'm just curious for you personally uh why did you choose this route yeah um it's interesting in the sense that i don't really have a particular um reason why we didn't raise funds i think for me the way i think about it is that uh when i'm very clear that capital is the bottleneck for our growth then that's what i'll do right i'll raise capital but as long as capital isn't the bottleneck and in most cases it isn't right like people think that yeah. capital is the bottleneck and that's the magic pill that will solve all your problems but it won't right <laughs> <laughs> so you know i think for me uh, at least in the last 3 4 years where we've grown really fast we haven't actually ever found capital to be the bottleneck there were always other bottlenecks that we were solving for um you know i i could potentially be raising a little bit of money uh, next year in in 2021 to be able to fuel our growth because i finally feel like capital is starting to become our bottleneck. To that point, I mean, what wh- what do you mean? Can you dive a little bit deeper into how it would become a bottleneck in your case or even how other companies could could think about that and just f- curious for other founders out there. Sure. So, for example, right? Like for example, to be able to hit my revenue goals for next year, right? 
I knew I know what my conversion rates are in terms of uh, you know how many opportunities do I need to create to be able to close uh, this many accounts and what that revenue what that will lead to in terms of revenue. And in all the years in the past when I've thought about that, it sounded more like hey we need to improve how much each for example SDR is able to do or how much each AE is able to do or how much our marketing team is supporting the SDRs and the AEs and things like that, right? So those were the bottlenecks that we needed to solve for. And now, you know, we've gotten to a point where we feel like we, we just need to have more SDRs. We need to generate this kind of content for all of this need, for all of this to happen, right? I need more money to be able to hire upfront because that investment will pay back in 12 months, right? So that's where you know that capital is the bottleneck and not your inefficiency in doing something. Right. So that's what I mean by understanding yeah. clearly where your bottleneck is. And I think I would actually sort of generally apply that and say that, like, you know, I think where the way I run the company is I always think about literally every single day, every single week, I'm thinking about what's our number one and number two bottleneck for growth right now. Right. And I'm constantly trying to make sure that the maximum amount of my time is going into solving those bottlenecks because I think. Yeah, one of the key lessons that I learned through this journey is is that we end up as entrepreneurs, you know, chasing every shiny object out there, right? <laughs> uh, we tend to do so many things but get very little done. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. And so, yeah, so I think that's been a great, I guess, learning for me, a mantra that I continue to follow in terms of uh, how to focus. Yeah, but it's so tempting. They are so shiny. Those objects, we want to just do them. <laughs> we yeah, want to try all those different it. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was an advice uh, I've gotten uh, repeatedly, you know, especially early on in my kind of journey as well, is figuring out ways to focus. And I do find myself as well, you know, pursuing multiple things at once where you're like, how many is too many? And what should I really be <laughs> focusing on based on the goals I have right now? And that can be uh, a challenge of sorts, let's just say, um, yeah, when you're running a business. Yeah, and that cognitive dissonance is is what's important. What's like really funny about entrepreneurship, right? Like on one head, on one side of your head, you need to hold this thought that you know you need to really focus. You can't be doing too many things. At the other, on the other side of the head, at the same point in time, you need to also know that you need to look out for opportunities, right? So, <laughs> there's so many yeah. things like this about entrepreneurship. Well, yeah, because you don't know necessarily if you pursue something like, oh, this could actually be a 10x growth lever if we did this, but. At the same time, I'm getting this consistent growth with what we're currently doing, and we need to double down on this to make sure like this pipeline is great. Like, there's so many different ways to go about it. There's no there's no right answer necessarily. Um, you're just trying to figure out the best at the moment. And one of the things you had mentioned earlier on that I want to go a little bit deeper on is you talked about kind of resources and educating different universities, and now you have you have case studies of a blog, etc. How does that play a part into the growth of Alma Base? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, and I think. Uh, you know, case studies have been a big part of, uh, you know, uh, our, our growth strategy, because what we've realized is the way universities and high schools operate, uh, especially when it comes to buying new software, is they always want to know what their, you know, the, the neighborhood school is doing or their sister school is doing. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's how yeah. they end up making decisions around what to buy and, you know, how to use it. Because and, and to their defense, they really want to see what this really means, right? Because every single salesperson in the world, whether their software works or not, will tell you that you're going to be in this dreamland <laughs> once you buy their software, right? <laughs> and it's really hard to tell uh, which one's true and which one's not, right? So I think that's where, you know, in today's world of SaaS, I think it's really important to really let your customers communicate for you, right? And uh, if you look at any sort of uh, industry sort of charts, like a G2 crowd or a Captera or anything like that, 
any listing like that, Almabase is always the highest rated. You, you look at the reviews and every single customer will sort of be saying, we love their service because that's what we prioritized right up front, right? Again, going back to our mission of, you know, wanting to make sure that education becomes more affordable. Right from day one, we actually invested in really strong customer service. And that's really helped us because unlike, uh, you know, ha without having to actually invest millions of dollars in sales and marketing, we're able to acquire customers quite rapidly because our existing customers speak so highly about uh, you know the kind of service that we're able to provide. So that's been a massive sort of growth lever for us. Customer referrals has been really strong. On that note, with the customer service, and what did it look like in terms of providing that? Just a matter of having enough people to to really handle it, or can you just tell us a little bit more about what you mean about that? <laughs> with the first few customers, I literally just walked in uh, to their universities, stayed in their dorm rooms for a week. Um, <laughs> and said, you know, I'm going to do whatever you need to set this up, right? So I'm, I'm here for a week. Just give me a room in your dorm. And I'm going to be here, right? So that's, that's how amazing. we started, <laughs> uh, you know, because we, again, for us also, it was really important to kind of understand the real uh, pain points of our customers, right? And so we spent substantial amount of time making sure our customers were successful. And that was really important for us right from the beginning, right? And then obviously over time, we, uh, you know, again, it comes down to culture, right? When when uh, everybody in the company sees that right from the founders, you know, they care deeply about making sure customers' problems are getting solved and that's what we're here for, right? Uh, then everybody in the team understands that customer service is really critical, right? So not just the people who are hired to do customer service, but everybody in the company, you know, for example, an engineer gets a ping uh, on Slack at, you know, 11 p.m. in the night saying, hey, a customer is not able to send out this email to their alumni, right? Why should they respond, right? They're going to say, hey, you know what? I did my job of writing the code. I'm not really responsible if this email is not going out. But, you know, that's when customer service suffers, right? Because customer service team can't really do anything if the engineer is not responding, right? So it really comes down to culture, I would say. So for any company trying to provide great customer service, I think it has to start right from the founders. And I think that culture has to be inculcated across the company to be able to even have a shot at providing great customer service. With that, then you've been able to provide that, which has helped you grow, and you you crossed a million dollars in ARR, which is, is incredible. And and with that, then with this journey in the last number of years, getting to that milestone, which is for a lot of SaaS founders, I mean, big, a huge milestone. Any particular you know lesson or takeaway that you think is most helpful for maybe other SaaS founders that you wish you may have would have learned a little bit earlier in your career? Yeah, we've we've. Uh... Yeah, we, we are at, we've crossed that 100K MRR mark uh, recently purely in terms of the subscription revenue and we have a you know, low three-figure kind of transaction revenue as well. So yeah, this year has been um, good for us and you know things are going well, touch wood. <laughs> um, <laughs> in terms of uh, advice or learnings that I've had, uh, you know, that I, that I again find myself talking to other entrepreneurs about, I think one thing is uh, figuring out what to work on right, is more important than actually working really hard, right? I mean, you need to do both, to be honest. But, you know, a lot of people, again, going back to what the point that I was making earlier, uh, you know, we end up doing a lot of different things without actually getting a lot done, right? So I always keep reminding myself, because again, this is this is something that I, I fall prey to as well. So, you know, you need to do less, but get more done, right? So that's one, yeah. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think, you know, another um, sort of, I guess, learning or advice that I would give, again, something that I find myself saying quite frequently is 
a lot of people start with an idea which is more of a solution and then they're trying to go chase a problem that that solution can solve right so they'll come up and say hey i have this idea for a really cool app that's going to do this and then i say okay but whose problem is it going to solve right and they're like that's what we're figuring out right uh that most often doesn't work so you have to start with someone's real problem and i think that's really important you need to focus on solving a real problem for you know a certain type of customer and you need to stay close to the, those customers right because no matter what your engagement metrics are no matter what your product usage metrics tell you i think if you feel like you're not solving a real problem for customers i think that should be your only focus until you get there right so that's that's the other key learning that i've had which is focus on problems the solution will come don't start with a solution and go find the problem for you what is the big vision for alma base where do you think this company will be in you know 5 10 20 whatever years out i'm curious yeah i mean for me the ideal future is a place where every university is able to substantially subsidize their uh, every university and high school is able to substantially subsidize their uh, their uh, you know fee or education uh, by you know using or by leveraging the generosity of other people right that's the vision that's where we want to be and i think you know when it comes to uh, you know universities and high schools obviously we're continuing to focus on the us uh, you know at least for the foreseeable future uh, we want to obviously you know be able to work with as many uh, universities and schools as possible in the next few years uh, and then also try and do this globally because we again like i said we strongly believe in this mission and i think this is a great way to sustainably reduce the cost of education which is which is what we really care about I just have a couple a couple quick questions left. One being, how do you recharge day to day? Yeah. So funnily enough, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I mean, that's my favorite go-to, uh, you know, whenever I want to sort of just get out of my work thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do a lot of uh, I mean, every morning when I go for a run, I turn on a podcast. I'm not really a big music person, uh, strangely, so you know, I I end up listening to a lot of podcasts uh, during my runs in the morning. So that's something that I do quite frequently and helps me recharge, come up with new ideas and things like that. And I also spend a lot of time talking to other founders, either founders who, you know, obviously grown their business much larger than we have at this point, trying to gather ideas and, you know, learnings from their journey. and talk to founders who are much earlier in terms of their journey uh, trying to share whatever i can so talking to other founders also sort of gives me uh, a lot of energy and i obviously enjoy having a drink with my team uh, love <laughs> hanging out with my team but you know it's been hard this year yeah <laughs> so a little different those are the things yeah yeah a little having bit different on zoom is is not the same <laughs> it's definitely not the same at all. On the running note, is that a, a daily thing you go on runs or a couple a week? I'm just curious. I, I'm definitely a runner of sorts as well. Yeah, I try, I, I try to do daily, but yeah, if I have to be uh, honest, I think it's more like four times a week. And has that been something that you've you've always done? Um I had sort of stopped doing that for a long time in between. Started that again, uh, you know, this year. Um I mean yeah a lot has happened in life <laughs> you know over the last <laughs> few years I've had a child a uh, kid last year and she's about one and a half years old so that's kept us busy you know during the last year and a half or so but yeah during the pandemic I think with the, with the forced work from home etc I really needed to step out and you know get some air I guess yeah <laughs> so yeah. I sort of restarted that uh, habit this year so I'm thankful for that 
Yeah, and on that note, then just one, one, one final thing really is just on the COVID kind of pandemic situation, how has that impacted Almabase? Yeah, I mean, before we sort of talk about numbers or, you know, how that has had an impact on the business, I think irrespective of whether the business has done well or not, I think this has been a tough year. But also what it's shown me is is resilience, right? I think it's been amazing to see how each individual in the company has sort of reacted and shown their resilience to, you know, all of the all of the unprecedented stuff that's happened, uh, you know, around the world, right? So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm really, I guess, really... Um, excited i don't know if excited is the right word but i'm really thankful to see how much resilience we all have as individuals and in a lot of ways i've also been thankful to see the kind of resilience that we've built into the company itself because i think we we had a tough couple of months you know march april etc but we've bounced back pretty strongly and we've had a pretty good year uh you know as a business but i think it's also shown how resilient we are as a, as a bootstrap profitable business how we were able to sort of thrive thrive through this pandemic you know, not not the most ideal circumstances where we would call it a good year, but yeah, it is, it is what it is, and I think uh, I'm really I'm really glad to sort of see the resilience in people and in in the business. Yeah, it's it's obviously been tough for for everyone in different ways. I mean, but difficult regardless in some capacity. And uh, interesting to see how people have uh, kind of overcome that. And you know, you don't really have a, a choice, right? I mean, we have to keep going, and that's the only option you have. And and I'm always, I'm a big reader, so I always just like to ask one little quick question on the books. Any particular books that have been impactful for you, whether it be professional or just, just personal? Yeah, um, a few books that I think I've really enjoyed reading. One is this uh, book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz um that, that was a great one and i one the only book i guess i really like from a very tactical point of view is never split the difference by chris watts <laughs> yeah uh, that was a really amazing one and i i love uh, high output management by andy grove i mean it's a classic it's been there forever but still i mean every time i read it i learn something new it's, it's been amazing um yeah so those are some books that i think i really enjoyed and continue to read multiple times yeah, the Ben Horowitz book has been definitely recommended a number of times for good reason. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very good book, and it is a mix of like neat and the tactical things with like Chris Voss's book, for instance. I talked to someone recently who um, had met him and then had <laughs> had done a negotiation like with him at some conference or something, and I was like, that had to be an interesting experience. Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously, his experience uh, negotiating a uh, hostage negotiator. I mean, it's kind of insane. And and where can people go to learn more about Alma Base and connect with you as well? Sure. Yeah. So I think we're, I, I think I'm most active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search for Kalyan from Almabase uh, and you'll find me. Um, and yeah, I, I'm sort of recently more active on Twitter, but yeah, I need to grow that quite a bit. <laughs> Twitter. Oh, Twitter. I feel like there's so much benefit from being on there with the power of the retweet and also just the VC kind of uh, an entrepreneurial space. It seems to be a favorite for many. So I, I often think of doing more on Twitter, but uh, we'll, we'll get there together. <laughs> yeah, me as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. I absolutely enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me, Justin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.